Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. Except in this series, we've been working adjacent to the Word as we've been moving through Augustine's Confessions. And I have to say, this episode is finally arriving at one of the key reasons why I wanted to explore the Confessions in the first place, why I wanted to talk about identity and its relationship to Augustine and the Confessions, and why I personally love Christopher Nolan movies. This episode, we're gonna be diving into the notorious books 10 and 11 of Augustine's Confessions. Notorious because suddenly, while we've been sharing this whole time in Augustine's life story, suddenly Augustine is gonna pivot and move into some of the most profound ancient reflections on time and memory that exist anywhere. These are the reflections that continue to shape thinking today on how we understand a person in relationship to time and to memory. And yet, as you will see, there is so much going on in these two books that we could probably do series after series just unpacking them. So without further ado, let's dive in. Okay, so I'm sure you can tell I'm fired up about this one. This episode is going to be good. First, let me give a little bit of context to the Christopher Nolan title so my friends know. For probably a decade now, I've been fascinated by Christopher Nolan's work. If you're not familiar, Christopher Nolan first came to fame as the director of the Dark Knight trilogy, the Batman movies that got really dark and realistic, that had sort of a mafia feel to them. He has since gone all over the place. He's done Interstellar, the outer space movie about fatherhood and loss and parenting. And he did Inception, which was the mind-bending heist thriller exploring the crevices of one's interior memories. He also has done Dunkirk. He did Tenet recently. I mean, the man's got a pretty solid repertoire by this point. And yet, anyone who knows Christopher Nolan knows that while on the surface Christopher Nolan presents like a blockbuster director, and he tends to love huge practical effects pieces and leaning into this sort of dark, grisly, semi-nihilistic portrayal of Earth on the edge of anarchy. The truth of the matter is, if you press deeper into Christopher Nolan's screenplays and to his writings, they really all go back to the first movie that he made with his brother Jonathan Nolan, who wrote the story behind it. And the movie was called Memento. And it was actually based, I've done some digging on this, on a real-life person who had, a, I think it was a surgery that removed a part of their brain, the person known to the medical community as H.M., lost the ability to keep short-term memories, but retained long-term memory before the accident took place. So the person who was living would live 20 minutes at a time. Basically, they knew who they were. They had their name. They had their childhood. They had deep formative experiences. They could even recall and talk quite casually using proper grammar. They could sit down and write. They could call to mind historical facts that they had learned about U.S. history from their childhood. And yet this person, when you sat to talk with them, inevitably partway through the conversation would forget what you had been talking about because their memory would slip. They could not retain short-term memory. And they, they did all kinds of prodding and poking. They maybe thought this was fake. They thought this was an illusion. And yet H.M. had lost the portion of his brain that kept short-term memories. So Christopher Nolan makes his first movie, which he calls Memento. And it, of course, is going to involve sort of like drug war, uh, underground mafia subtext. There's going to be some violence in it. It's going to be very confusing. One of Christopher Nolan's classic techniques, just trying to disorient you as the audience. But underneath the surface, what Christopher Nolan is actually doing is he's asking what it means that a person's memory could have such a significant role in shaping who they are that if memory was lost, who would you be left with? That's sort of Christopher Nolan's question as he's wrestling with the film Memento. And that that insight from Christopher Nolan is going to set him up on this trajectory through the rest of his movies 
where Nolan is constantly going to be grappling with, in some ways, the very question we've been grappling with in this most recent series. Who am I really? How, if the world is so charged and so confused when it comes to identity, how do I get any clear sense of who I am? Where do I look when it comes to trying to find something stable, something secure to hold on to, an essence of myself, if so many of the key integral parts of what makes me me can be shifted, can be changed, can be influenced, can be misdirected. So you see in Memento that without his short-term memory, the character is incredibly susceptible to the outside influences of others. In fact, there's a profound cultural analysis in Memento of Christopher Nolan commenting on a world, commenting on a society in which all of us if we are not careful, can find ourselves living year to year either repeating the same mistakes, and the character has this semi-insanity where he just keeps going because he keeps forgetting, he just keeps repeating what he has done before, all the way up to a broader societal story in which Christopher Nolan is asking, do any of us have a truly grounded sense of who we are and what story we're living in? Do any of us really know? why we're here, where our story is going, where our story has been. I just love it. Okay, so I background on this is that my friends know that I love Christopher Nolan. My wife notoriously will say publicly, if you ever ask her about it, that she has all kinds of disappointments with Christopher Nolan's storytelling abilities. She thinks he's way too dark. She thinks his characters are too male-centric. She thinks there's not enough emotion. There's a lot of nihilism in how Christopher Nolan thinks. To all of that, I would agree, and simply suggest that Christopher Nolan really needs to meet St. Augustine. I think this conversation that we're about to have today would help correct a lot of the deficiencies in the stories that Christopher Nolan has been telling. So, to that end, what does Augustine have to do with Christopher Nolan? Why does Christopher Nolan matter when it comes to this conversation we've been having with St. Augustine? Well, Augustine is going to do something now in the Confessions that has baffled commentators and casual readers alike for the last 1,500 years or so since he's written it. He is going to shift, after having done an incredible rhetorical masterpiece covering the memories of his life, the confessions of his life, moving, as we saw through the last episode, from all the way from his birth, these profound opening salvos about the God he's confessing to, the restless heart that can only find rest in God, all the way to beautifully culminating in Book 9, this arrival of peace as he is born again in his baptism in Book 9. Even as his mother dies, he has now entered into the life of the church. In every way, Augustine could have ended his confessions at Book 9, but but Augustine is not yet finished, and Augustine is going to proceed for the next four books Oral books, which in ancient works, it's, it's a lot of text. If you ever buy a copy of the Confessions, you'll see you've got a good chunk to go here. Moving not through more details of his story, but now moving into really dense, complex, philosophical reflection on the nature of memory, first in book 10, and then on the nature of time in book 11, before concluding with a complex interpretation of creation in Genesis 1 to 2, bringing that all the way into his story. So we're going to talk next episode about why Augustine ends with scripture, necessarily, necessarily ends with scripture when it comes to reflecting on his own story. But for this episode, this episode, we're just going to slow down and we're going to try to untangle as best I can. I mean, I don't know a single person in the world who's fully qualified to enter into book 10 and book 11 of the confessions, but we're going to give it at least a a go, particularly with an eye to our dear friend Christopher Nolan, what does memory and time have to do with our identities? So as I look to book 10, I, I think it can be confusing on a casual read why Augustine is shifting here. You just feel a little bit of whiplash. But there is a story taking place that Augustine is not yet done telling. And the story is that in light of his own life, in light of the details of his own life, it naturally is going to make sense to him that he should reflect on the process of reflecting on the memories he's just shared. So if that makes sense, I'm going to read you a paragraph from the opening of book 10, 
And this is some of the motive behind what Augustine's about to do. He says this, To you then, Lord, I lie exposed exactly as I am. I have spoken of what I hope to gain by confessing to you. My confession to you is made not with words of tongue and voice, but with the words of my soul and the clamor of my thought to which your ear is attuned. For when I am bad, confession to you is simply disgust with myself. But when I am good, confession to you consists in not attributing my goodness to myself. Because through you, Lord, bless the person who is just. It is only because you have first made him just when he was sinful. That is why, O my God, my confession in your presence is silent, yet not altogether silent. There is no noise to it, but it shouts by love. I can say nothing right to other people unless you have heard it from me first, nor can you even hear anything of the kind from me which you have not first told me. Augustine is going to continue by pointing out, and this is where it really gets interesting, what point is there for me and other people hearing my confessions? Are they likely to heal my infirmities? A curious lot they are, eager to pry into the lives of others, but tardy when it comes to correcting their own. Why should they seek to hear from me what I am, when they are reluctant to hear from you what they are. And when they hear from me about myself, how do they know that I am speaking the truth since no one knows what goes on inside a person except the spirit of that person within them? So this to me is really important. And this is the book where Augustine really is going to unpack not just the ongoing narrative of his life, but Augustine is now starting to give us some of the method of what he has been doing. He has been exposing his soul before God. Now, he has been doing it for our benefit, but you notice the real gift that Augustine is naming is the gift that in exposing his own soul, what he's realizing is there's nothing within him that he can truly know if God has not first spoken it and offered it to him. And second, when it comes to other people, how can anyone, in hearing his confession made before God, come back to him with some sort of judgment, correction, critique, the point, the point that Augustine is trying to model to us is that when it comes to your identity, I can't actually tell you who you are. No one can tell you who you are. You, Augustine would say, do not even know truly who you are. I certainly do not know the true depths of who I am. In fact, this is one of the pillars that I have found profoundly moving about Augustine's vision for identity, and I want to share it as clearly as I can with you. When it comes to who you are, Augustine would challenge you that at your core essence, no matter how much progress you make, no matter how much therapy you undertake, no matter how much reading you do, no matter how many great relationships you have, no matter how stable and good your marriage is, no matter how clear you feel you have tested in a complex mix of personality tests and EQ and IQ and diagnostic, medical, all the rest. It doesn't matter how close you get at the end of the day. You are more deep and more complex than you or anyone else could ever possibly know. You are, in fact, at your truest core, always going to be a mystery to yourself. Now, I realize this is actually very challenging as a thought, and in some ways, without trying to get too off base here, I would just point out the history of philosophical reflection pushed against Augustine here really hard for about 500 years. So going all the way back to our initial episode when the Enlightenment came in, when Descartes showed up on the scene, when progress really seemed to be cooking, what the whole Enlightenment project was doing was suggesting, particularly based from Descartes to Immanuel Kant, that there is actually a stable, reliable narrator within yourself. There is a voice of reason that is cool, that is dispassionate, that is logical, and that if you can just attune yourself to that voice of reason, if you can just think logically, if you can engage the world in such a way that the gift of reason that God has given you can process what's taking place around you, well then, you can begin to gain mastery of the world as you find it. That's where all of the scientific method starts exploding. With great success, there was a lot of fruit coming out of the dedicated use of reason attempting to solve questions of scientific inquiry. And yet, even more than that, if you start to control the external world around you, well then surely, surely you can master the world within yourself as well. Now that 
that thought about self-mastery was not a enlightenment thought. That thought went all the way back to the Stoics, to other Greek thinkers as well. But if that has been a journey of humankind, and if that journey has led us to some incredible breakthroughs, I mean, wow, we have technologically advanced since Augustine's day. We have politically advanced. Just recently, was working through a biography on Thomas Jefferson, and in Jefferson's life, you hear him say, I will use reason, and the sovereignty of reason in the individual is what I want the American government, the American constitution to protect, to defend, and to empower. This is Jefferson's genius. It's a brilliant insight. What if we could give individuals the responsibility and the power to trust their reason in order to govern themselves through a democratic, fair, just system. Incredible breakthrough on the world political stage. Yet, if that's been the case, unfortunately for the Enlightenment, the last 100 years have not been kind from a philosophical, from a historical, from a socioeconomical, from a psychological, I mean, basically all fields of inquiry, including the scientific method itself has begun to collapse in on this idea that our reason is cool, dispassionate, and logical, and therefore infallible and needing to always be trusted. Now that of course doesn't mean that logic and reason is not a powerful tool that each of us have, nor does that mean that Augustine is suggesting to you that you don't know something about yourself. Of course you know something about yourself. That's the beauty and the gift of your memories that we're about to explore. It's the beauty and the gift of what God has placed within you as an image bearer. Yet, the last hundred years have collapsed in on the idea that there is something stable and truly knowable within you. And if you ask any, any of the disciplines, I've been looking around, I've been holding this question before them. There's almost innumerable resources at this point you could point to. Any resource would tell you in philosophy with Heidegger and Derrida and Michael Fish and all of the other deconstructionists, all the way over to psychologists like Jonathan Haidt, uh, Daniel Kahneman, all these fields are pressing up against this question. Are you actually a reliable narrator of yourself? Do you truly know who you are? And all of them would say, you always are influenced by your context. You always are influenced by your environment far more than any of us would ever wish to acknowledge. And in fact, if we simply present ourselves as infallible, as above it all, as stable, when in fact we are not stable, then we could find ourselves in incredibly precarious positions, much like what happened as we made atomic weaponry, much like what happened in Nazi Germany, much like what happened in many of the communist overthrows across the Eastern world, not to mention the capitalistic systems, which continue to try to tell us we actually control ourselves when in fact the market, the marketing, the visioning gaze of our society is what is directing our lusts, our passions, and our desires. So the point is this, Augustine offers us a vision here as he moves to memory where he creates a foundation of distrust in himself. He says, as I've gone back and looked at my life, the main conclusion I've come away with is that I know something about myself, but when it comes to my true essence, my true identity, I really don't know as much as I would hope. So let me read you another excerpt just to give you a feel for Augustine in his own words. Here's what he says just a little later on in book 10. For it is you, Lord, who judge me, no one knows what he himself is made of except his own spirit within him. Yet there is still some part of him which remains hidden, even from his own spirit. But you, Lord, know everything about a human being because you have made him. And though in your sight I may despise myself and reckon myself dust and ashes, I know something about you which I do not know about myself. It is true that we only see in a tantalizing reflection, as in a mirror. And so it is that while I am on pilgrimage far from you, I am more present to myself than to you. So this is what Augustine's saying. Is this a problem? Is this a crisis? Is this actually a crisis? And here's pastorally where I want to answer. Maybe I'm getting close to the point of why I hoped this series would exist, even if we've wandered and meandered our way to this reflection. I would say Augustine would tell you, yes, 
and no. Yes, there is, in fact, a major problem. You, in your identity, do not have a stable understanding of yourself. You are not stable. You're not stable. Your identity is not secure. When you are left on your own, he's going to prove it to you in just a second, you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. That's a huge problem. But, but to the crisis of identity, here's what Augustine's been saying this whole time. Here's the vision he's been offering us. He says, you don't know who you are, but God actually does know who you are. Is that not a relief? Is this not good news? In fact, is this not the good news? I mean, Augustine is going to push us all the way here to salvation and the gospel itself. In fact, this is why I think we need Augustine now in the church more urgently than perhaps we did 500 years ago as the Enlightenment was kicking off and as Augustine was in some ways pushed to the curb. Augustine is not just a theologian of grace, although that is certainly a huge aspect of what Augustine is saying here. Augustine is not just a theologian of original sin, which is often where Augustine gets really locked into theological debates, if you've had any theological training. Instead, while Augustine is certainly those other things, Augustine is also a theologian, a doctor of the church in identity. Identity is one of the great insights that Augustine is offering to the church in the 4th and 5th century, and it's one of the great insights that a culture in crisis needs. I mean, this is why Augustine is writing his confessions in the middle of the breakdown of a pluralistic, overly extended imperial system. He sees that there is danger and problems in the church being entwined in this close, uneasy relationship with the state. And while he's not decrying the influence that Christianity can have over culture, what Augustine sees clearly is that at the core essence of the issue, you need an answer to who you are, and that answer cannot be derived from within yourself. It can't be pulled from the culture around you. Instead, that answer has to come. It has to come for Augustine from the God who created you, from the only one who actually knows all of who you've been. So here's where Augustine takes us. If you don't believe him, if you don't trust him yet on this, here's where he presses you by pushing into his own story. He turns in book 10 to what he calls the fields or the storehouse of memory. Now track with this. Augustine says, Now I arrive in the fields and vast mansions of memory, where are treasured innumerable images brought in there from objects of every conceivable kind, perceived by the senses. There too are hidden away the modified images we produce, when by our thinking we magnify or diminish, or in any other way alter the information our senses have reported. So Augustine, in pushing himself towards a reflection not just of the memories he has, but on the container for his memories, he envisions very vividly, very imagistically, a storehouse or even a great mansion where his memories are placed. And here's immediately what he finds. The storehouse of his memory has treasures. That's essentially what he's been offering to us. And here's what I would encourage you in. Your storehouse of memory has treasures. There are treasures in your storehouse. So when I ask you, if we were to sit across the table over a cup of coffee, and I were to say, tell me about your childhood. Inevitably, what would begin to happen is your brain, quite literally, would be firing off into the recesses of your memory. There's actually a part of your brain that is where memories are stored. And as the memories are recalled, you would begin to bring vividly before me with your words the treasure of the memories that are stored there. Isn't that beautiful? You, you begin bringing out these treasures, and it's likely, as psychologists would point out to you, that the treasures you choose to bring forward, if I were to ask you that question, tell me about your childhood, those treasures are probably some of the most valuable items in that storehouse. So most of us don't waste a lot of time holding on to items that are not treasures. Most of us find that the storehouse, in becoming cluttered, is constantly in need of cleansing, and yet even as you cleanse your storehouse regularly, some particular items, some particular memories are going to become especially vivid and especially precious to you. And it probably, probably is easy enough for you, even as I ask this question, you probably have at least three or four stories from your childhood that you could easily recall and bring forth to the surface. 
Yet, almost immediately as Augustine is highlighting the treasures of the memories and basically saying what I've been sharing so far in my confessions has been a drawing out, a presenting of my treasures, he immediately notices that the treasures which are there in your memory are images stored by your senses. And as he begins to reflect on those images, he just asks this painful question, which should haunt all of us to some degree. And the question is, is it possible that the image, the artifact, the treasure that you hold onto in your memory has perhaps been modified or adjusted since it was first stored? Now, I'll cut to the chase here. I've been doing a lot of reading on the psychology of memory, on the neuroscience of memory, and the long and the short of it is, the answer is yes. When you go to store a memory, your brain is focused. It's focused on collecting all of this vivid data, and what your brain is always doing is firing to figure out where the most substance and most meaning is to be found. So even if you think about what you're looking at, Right now, if you're maybe at the gym or you're on a walk or you're driving in the car listening to this podcast, as you look with your eyes, take just a second. This is kind of an interesting experiment. Notice what you're looking at, okay? So I right now, I'm sitting in an office. I have blinds in front of me and my gaze is almost immediately drawn to the windows which are right in front of me. But if you take even a moment to reflect on what you just noticed, for me, the blinds, they're right in front of me. They're these wooden blinds. They're beautiful. Light's coming through them. It's great. That's what I'm seeing. Of course, that's what my memory will now be as I reflect on this moment in this chair in this office space. But if I'm being honest, as I now am beginning to look, I'm starting to see that in my periphery there's a lamp that I can see right now but I'm clearly not focused on. In fact, the microphone which I'm recording this into has been in front of me this whole time. I've got pictures on the walls, I've got my computer that's constantly shifting in front of me, I've got in the barest sort of corner of my gaze, I've got a couple photos off to the side that my eyes are slightly picking up. The light from the window, I can sort of see through the blinds here in front of me and I'm catching glimpses of the grass. I can now see as I look more closely that there's clouds up in the sky. I mean, this is not even that interesting of a scene. And all of a sudden I begin to realize my eyes have taken all of this data in, but what has my brain done? My brain is focused on one specific and concrete aspect of my sight in order to tunnel in, in order to focus on it, in order to pull my brain away from the innumerable, almost unending data points that my eyes are taking in in the millisecond of my gaze and instead draw my attention to the thing my mind thinks I would want to focus on most, which are the blinds. Now, if that's true about this moment in time, then inevitably, as you go back to the memories you have, even the most vivid memory, you probably have a memory that is very strong, it's very vivid, and you would stand before a jury and say, I testify to the truthfulness of this memory. But where Augustine is pushing you is to note, can you with your words possibly capture everything about that memory? No, of course you can't vividly display every aspect of the memory that you are recalling. In fact, even the best description of the most vivid memory still, much like my gaze right now in this moment that's looking at the blinds, it would have a focal point, some fixed point of attention in your memory that has been drawn to your mind because of its value or meaning. And it's possible, in fact, it's even probable that in order to get to that fixed attention, your brain had to push aside other valid, relevant data points so that it could be focused on the thing your brain found meaningful about that memory. And so as Augustine gets to that point, what he realizes is that all of us, for innocent enough intentions, have tampered with memories. Our memories, even the most complicated, most thought and reflected upon, most detailed, I mean, even the most vividly recorded moment is always going to be coming only from the camera angle of the camera itself. It is impossible in recording a memory to capture everything taking place behind the camera. And in that sense, while our memories are incredibly important and while psychologists would immediately say the thing that your brain focuses on in your memories is likely a thing of immense importance. It's worth paying attention to. Why did you focus on this part of your memory? 
The flip side of that same coin is then that all our memories, unfortunately, inherently have an element of distrustworthiness that suggests a part of us could be deceived in reflecting on how something happened, how something occurred, what was taking place behind the scenes. And so I think about conflicts that I've been in, conflicts that have gotten really messy, really explosive, that, that normally centered on some clear event. It was clear to me when this person did that, well, that was wrong. But of course, if that's my memory, if that's the treasure I'm bringing forth from my storehouse, am I 100% certain that I understood everything about why that person did what they were doing? Did I capture all the data taking place in that room when something happened? I mean, as soon as you stumble in to the vastness of memory, you enter a labyrinth so complex so impossible to land that you are left with the realization that the best we can hope for is interpreted memory. The best we can hope for is someone to sit down with us and make sense of the memories as they present themselves to our brain. Someone perhaps even to draw out our memories, to ask us about specific treasures, maybe aspects of our storehouse, of our mansion that we haven't explored for a while. So the best therapist is going to sit with you and say, I know you keep telling me about when you were six, and you got that new race car and how beautiful it was. But what Christmas present did you get when you were five? Who was the person who gave you that present? Was it your mom or your dad? What was your sister doing? What was your brother doing? Where was your friend in that moment? Why was it that you were alone when this occurred? Why was it that other people were around you as this moment took place? I mean, you begin to see what Augustine's longing for is someone to come in and interpret the memories for him and with him. And this is exactly what Augustine suggests God is not only capable of doing, but that God is necessary to do. Do you hear the sweet relief again? I know I'm just coming back again and again in this episode to the gospel. The gospel is that you cannot on your own make sense of your own memory. You cannot, even with a skilled therapist, pull out all of the meaning of matter in your brain, all of the impressions that were stored, and even if you could, you still wouldn't know every aspect, every data point of the memories that truly matter to you. But God, God who in Jesus Christ came down and took on flesh, God who, as we will soon see, stepped into time, this God who is also above and beyond time is the one who can hold, who can direct and interpret all of the memories that matter to understanding who you are. When Augustine stumbles upon this point, he's going to say, oh my God, profound, infinite complexity. What a great faculty memory is. How awesome a mystery. It is the mind, and this is nothing other than me, my very self. What am I then, God? What is my nature? It is teeming life of every conceivable kind, and exceedingly vast. See in the measureless plains and vaults and caves of my memory, immeasurably full of countless kinds of things, which are there either through their images, or by being themselves present, or by registering themselves and making their mark in some indefinable way. In this wide land I am made free of all of them, free to run and fly to and fro, to penetrate as deeply as I can, to collide with no boundary anywhere, so great is the faculty of memory, so great the power of life in a person whose life is tending towards death. If this is Augustine's joy in his reflection on the potential of memory, he's soon going to discover that tries he might to run to and fro, these vast plains, these vast fields and storehouses of memory are in fact so vast that he has no other hope, no other hope but to throw himself on the mediator who is Christ. There was a recent book on Augustine and memory by a Notre Dame theologian called Kevin Grove. And Grove, with a lot of insight, is going to talk about Augustine failing into Christ when it comes to his memory. Failing into Christ. So as Augustine tries to master his memory, as he tries to master his own identity, here's the good news that this episode is trying to offer you. You will not be able to conquer the memories that you have, but if you are going to fail when it comes to memory itself, then fail into Christ. Fail into the God who is able to mediate your memories. Fail into the one who can speak your memories back to you, who can point you in the right direction, who can surface 
that which needs to be healed. Augustine is going to stumble into this profound thought where he begins to wrestle with this question. If his memory is so vast, if there's so many data points that he can't even control, that can't even be captured in the specificity of a treasure, then is it possible that his memory, Augustine's own memory, actually contains God? That Augustine's memory, the storehouses, the fields, the vastness of memory, is actually the place where God has been speaking, has been calling, has been drawing Augustine to himself. Now, I've mentioned before in previous episodes, there's some real complex trajectories that this thought is going to take, and there's some real complex philosophical conversation points that Augustine was engaging by asking this question. Everyone from Plato, who suggested that the true, the forms, are there pre-existent, and that all of us are therefore echoes living in this land of shadow of the forms, all the way forward to Carl Jung, who as a psychologist would reflect on the question, is it possible that humanity, by our shared origin, our shared ancestry, share a collective unconscious, is what Jung would call it, this collective source of memory in which all of us, if you even track the DNA, all of us go back to the same roots. All of us are sharing the same hubs of where we're coming from. I mean, it doesn't matter how evolutionary you are in your biological theory of creation or how radical your young earthism is with Adam and Eve. The truth is we all share a collective memory of where we've come from. And is it possible, young ass, that that memory is offering these echoes, echoes of all of our earlier ancestors' stories, but echoes even across our own lives, echoes of God, echoes of the divine, echoes of creation, echoes of salvation, echoes of Jesus sitting there in our memory. Well, Augustine is both gesturing towards that kind of magnitude and yet on a much simpler level. Augustine is acknowledging there from his childlikeness, God has been speaking to him through his life. And I think, I personally think, whatever conclusion you come to in wrestling with this proposal from Augustine, I think Augustine's onto something here, that when it comes to anyone's journey with God, I do not see a blank canvas, a tabla rosa, in which it is your reason alone that is going to come to a logical conclusion about the God of the universe and how he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Though, Interestingly, Augustine, of course, would be the first to point out it was his reason which fought God long into his life, and it was his questions, his logical questions, even about scripture themselves that needed to be addressed in order for his heart to be opened to the God who had been speaking to him. But what Augustine is getting at here is that as important as our reason is, beneath our reason is the heartbeat of love and desire. And God, Augustine believes, has been speaking to you through your memories your whole life. One of the clearest ways that this is going to come out is that when anything draws your heart in its goodness, when anything draws your life with its beauty, when anything speaks or resonates to you because of its truthfulness, well then surely, surely Augustine would say, is that not the memory, the echo of God who created that goodness, that beauty, that truthfulness that is now speaking to you across the infinite expanse of time, calling your heart back to the creator which made you. Here is the famous passage where Augustine attempts to summarize such a profound and sweeping thought. He says, Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within, but I outside, seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong. I misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you, those things which would have no being were they not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, 
and I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. This is the journey for Augustine. This is the invitation of the gospel. It's the realization that God has actually been calling to you in your life this whole time. That God has been using beauty, goodness, and love to speak to your heart. And all of the external factors have this simultaneous strain in which every part of your life, including the parts typically associated with lust or power or envy or greed or sin itself, they all have the potential to point to God and instead have simply been co-opted, corrupted, bent back in on themselves. But each of those objects which you poured your love into, they actually were intended to point beyond themselves. They actually were intended to offer you a channel, a call, a direction back towards the God who made them in the first place. So I warned you this would be a lot. This is a lot. In fact, this chapter on memory, it's the foundation of all psychology. It's the foundation of Augustine's theology, theology of desire. It is the necessary gateway to enter into what Augustine is saying about identity. And yet as entranceway, it both takes you into this vast conversation that is so overwhelming that it's easy to get lost, even as it presses up against you in this intimate invitation where Augustine says, just think about your memories even a little and stumble with me into these fields of grace where you realize you can never hope to truly understand yourself, but that God wants to teach you who you are anyways. God has been waiting here for you this whole time, and Jesus wants to run around with you and begin teaching you how to see God in the vast field of memory which you've had all along. For me, I could spend the rest of my life sitting here in Book 10 exploring with Augustine the implications for what the fields of memory mean for our own relationships and love of God. Yet, for the sake of an episode, I want to conclude by just pointing you to Book 11 and just pointing out that if Augustine wasn't vast enough, his reflection on memory is necessarily for Augustine going to move him to reflect on time. So here's the connection. When you begin to look at memories, you begin to realize that your memories as that which happened in the past have, in fact, implication for what you're doing in the present. In order for you to engage a memory which happened in the past, you have to use time here in the present to walk back into the storehouse of your memory. And by walk back, I, of course, am speaking metaphorically. You're, you're traveling in your mind to the memories that you have, which takes but an instant. And in accessing that storehouse, you bring what happened in the past into the present so that in the present, you can relive that which happened in the past. And this is what's happening every time you access memory. So that's a, an interesting thought that necessarily highlights time. What time is what time is doing when it comes to our identity, how necessary time is, you actually need to use time if you're going to access your memories. The minute you stop focusing on the present, you lose time that could be spent in the present by going back in order to access time that occurred in the past. And yet as Augustine surfaces all of this, he's going to be forced to ask himself, so wait, do I know what time is? So wait, what is time? I recently, in the eclectic reading I've been doing around Augustine, had the chance to listen to the audiobook by Carlo Rovelli called The Order of Time. Carlo Rovelli is one of the leading physicists who has done some pioneering work around Einstein's relativity and warped time, loop quantum gravity, a lot of other fascinating stuff that went way over my head. But the real intrigue to get you to listen to this book is that Benedict Cumberbatch does the reading for it, which is a real treat. Takes you into a different plane of existence when Benedict Cumberbatch is in your ear and telling you about time. What Carlo Rovelli highlights in this book is that since Einstein, our understanding of time has basically exploded. The reason why it's exploded is that everyone assumed time was quite straightforward, that time was dependent on a reference point, a reference point like the sun, and that because 
The sun is a steady reference point for us here on Earth. All time is set. It's stable. You think about your life. A minute is a minute. A second is a second. An hour is an hour. A year is a year. If you say last year to someone else, they'll know what you're talking about. Immediately, last year was their last year. If you talk about when I was 16 years old, that immediately makes sense. The reference point is 16 years. And when you say something like in 1945 on August 5th, everyone can know in their memory or in the shared collective memory we have of history what date you're referring to. That's what date it was. It was 2 p.m. August 5th, 1945. That's been the general assumption with time, and that's how science itself has generally approached time. Well, unfortunately, as Ravelli highlights, in the last 80 or so years, what Einstein observed is that if the reference point for time is variable, well then time itself is variable. And if time itself is variable, this is the part that's really tricky, then time essentially doesn't exist. So don't mean to burst your bubble or send you into a tailspin. The book by Carlo Rovelli is a great help if you're interested, if I'm intriguing you at all, to hear a far more technical and sufficient explanation of time. But if I was tracking around with Rovelli, and this is what Rovelli says, the physicists who have worked after Einstein have all agreed. When you really press into it like so much else that we have come to rely on and think is stable, it, time is not actually stable. One of the easiest ways to reflect on that, is to notice how when something really important is happening, it can feel like time slows down. Have you ever noticed that? When you're in the middle of a crucial moment of confrontation, or perhaps when you're about to be reunited with someone that you've missed for a really long time, then it can feel like time slows down. In fact, for you, for your experience, for your memory, time moves more slowly. You are more present. Your attention has expanded to capture as much as it possibly can of the moment that you are in the middle of experiencing. And in reverse, for most of us, I would put my day out there, even as you're listening probably to this podcast as you're doing something else. For most of us, time in other parts of our day, time that we're putting into work, time when we're driving, time when we're working out, time when we're on a walk, that time seems to go much more quickly, does it not? Time where all of a sudden you look at the clock and say, an hour has passed? Really? I barely noticed it. Four hours have passed since lunch? I barely noticed it. The day is gone. My week is gone? Barely noticed it. The point is that time is relative. Your experience and attention to time is relative in your own inner subjective experience. But even more than that, slightly crazier and slightly disconnected from Augustine, but I'm gonna throw it out there anyways. As they've done work on gravity, what they've begun to notice is that gravity, gravity is the variable factor determined by where you are on the earth in relationship to the sun. And if I'm capturing this right, and again, I'm not a scientist, so forgive me for my misguided explanations, but gravity affects your experience, your objective experience of time. So Christopher Nolan actually captures this in the movie Interstellar, where in a very brief explanation that goes way over my head, one of the characters explains it as they approach this different planet because gravity is different. What it means is that when they are on that planet, the experience of time is going to slow down, even as time itself outside of the gravity of that planet is going to appear to speed up. So for 20 minutes on this world, something like 15 or 20 years is going to go by back on planet Earth. Now that is so hard for us to get our heads around because time seems to be so linear, but essentially what Carlo Rovelli and other physicists of time have observed is that this is true. And the truth of it is because of the reference point. It's because of the experience of gravity in relationship to the sun. And so if you change gravity, you will expand or contract time just as if you change your position relative to the sun and relative to the gravity that this planet experiences of the sun, then you will change your own experience of time. Wow, that is about as abstract and heavy a thought as I will ever hope to communicate. And besides giving you a slightly harder time falling asleep tonight, should be tucked somewhere distant in your own <laughs> storehouses of memory, never to be surfaced as a treasure again. But if all of that is true, and I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, it is true. I'm not the one who studied or came up with it. This is what physicists are saying who actually 
pour their lives into this kind of work. One of the real gems of Rovelli's work that I was not expecting, but that Rovelli himself mentions is he says, so if you go back and read Augustine in book 11, that he wrote around 400 AD, so a long time ago, way before Einstein, Augustine, merely by drawing attention to his complex relationship to memory and time, what Augustine realizes is that time is not within his control. In fact, time is relative. I mean, that's the simplest way to summarize what Augustine's going to say. He's going to think about time, and he's going to think about his experience of time, and he's going to start to notice this. Here's how Augustine says, I'll I'll give you one last abstraction. He notices that the past, as in past time, the past, The past cannot be visited, so you can't go back to the past, because the past then would be your present. Even if you had a time machine, you would be presently experiencing the past. But because we, of course, don't have a time machine, and we live in the present, the only way to access the past is to use the present, as we've already highlighted, to go back and explore or examine a memory from the past. So in that way, Augustine comes to the conclusion, quite logically, that there is no such thing as the past. Unfortunately, there's only just the present. And if that's true, well then similarly, Augustine looks ahead to the future, and he notices there is no time in the future because even though we want to think, okay, five days from now, a year from now, 20 years from now, by the time that moment on a calendar, if that's our reference point, comes, that moment will of course be the present, it will no longer be the future. So if that's true, then Augustine just comes to the simple explanation that mind-bogglingly anticipates Einstein 1600 years later. Augustine comes to the realization there is in fact only the present. There's only the present, and that's kind of terrifying for one's identity because what it means is you don't actually have access to anything in the past, and you don't have any clear sense of what will be waiting for you in the future. Neither the past nor the future technically exists, only the present exists. Which, if it's true, I mean, we don't necessarily live as if it's true, but it is true. The present is all we have access to. Maybe that's the simplest way to say it. If that's true, then there's no such thing as an identity in our past or an identity in our future. There's just now. You just have right now, which you are choosing to spend with me over this podcast. I just have right now, which I am choosing to spend with you. We just have now, and in the nowness of our time, we're thrust into this overwhelming anxiety of what now means. Like, who are we now? What should we do with now? What do we do with what had happened now, but now is in the past, and we now no longer have access to? What value is any of that pastness to our now? What what value is any future to our now? Even if we could know what decisions we're going to make, even if we could know what's going to happen in our future, what use is that future to our now when that future doesn't exist? It's only now. This is the nowness of now. We only are now. All we have access to is now. Now, if the nowness of time does not intrigue you at least a little bit, I would point out almost all of the superhero movies right now are trending towards this fascination then with the possibility that nowness in time could be fractured in a multiverse to allow all these different opportunities. This is where a concept like the multiverse is coming from. This again is where Einstein was doing a lot of work, but all of it's there sitting in Augustine's thoughts. And here's where Augustine gets theological and concrete in ways that can help us, that can even help direct and guide our fascination with superhero movies and with the potential of time for understanding our own identities. Here's what Augustine says. The only way to have hope in something more than the nowness of now, essentially the only way to escape despair, the only way to escape a meaninglessness or a nothingness to our past or to our future, is to place hope in the God who exists and is a stable reference point outside of now. We need a God who gives meaning to our now-ness. We need a God who contains all of the now moments of the past. We need a God who also holds all of the now moments of our future. That God, as existing and operating outside of now, could become the stable reference point to meaning in our present. In fact, that God could be the one who could make sense of all of the craziness of our now. What are we hearing from Augustine in these reflections on time? Well, besides being deeply disturbed by the relativity and flux 
which we almost never live our lives aware of, Augustine is for a moment going to draw our attention to the deep instability, to the crisis of the present, the crisis of the fact that you cannot go back and change that which was. You cannot actually hold on to or control that which will be. You only are now, and yet, yet if if a person's going to have hope, if a person's not going to despair, if a person is going to be saved from now, they need a God who is outside of our now, a God who is outside of time. So in some ways, just like in memory where Augustine fails into memory, he fails in his recollection on memory, he fails in his attempt to gather up and control his own memories. Memory becomes an exercise in failure for Augustine. Similarly, time for Augustine becomes a necessary exercise in failure. Time cannot be mastered. Time cannot be controlled. In fact, the very stream, the steady stream of time, the relentless stream of time is so overwhelming that it's going to, by necessity, thrust us outside of itself into the need for someone, for God, to be bigger and outside of time. And essentially, Augustine is going to end book 11, much like he ends book 10, in utter dependency upon God, in a confession of his utter dependency on God. And that's where, if this episode has been abstract, I'll try to land with this practical thought. I think that memory and time are two of the great disruptors that for all our sophistication, the secular age, 21st century, everything in culture has no response to. We've got nothing to say when it comes to the overwhelming struggle that we cannot control or master memories, nor can we control or master time. And if that's true, even if we often do everything in our power to avoid that steady rush of time, years just slipping through our fingers, the overwhelming vastness of our memories, the sense in which we can barely find or recover anything from ourselves, which we experienced ourselves. The only hope we have is a God who is more than memory and who is more than time, but also contains within God's own self all memory and all time. It's such a big thought that I almost, as an American, feel myself too lazy to get to most of the time. To be honest, I can barely keep my focus off my phone long enough to even get through an hour of a podcast, let alone press into the mysteries of memory and time. Yet, yet I think there's a gift here that for all of the struggle of your identity, for all of the overwhelming weight of trying to figure out who we are, Augustine's great invitation is that at some point, for all the necessary work to get to know yourself, to go through your story, to comb your memories, to move with Christ into a confession arrived at by logical, rigorous reasoning, at some point, all you have, at some point, all I have, is to fail into Christ, to fail into God, to cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of a God who made us, to cast ourselves on a Savior, an incarnate one who somehow could both transcend our memories, could contain in his own death on a cross every memory of sin that you have and have not yet done, could contain in his crucifixion all of time itself, an eternal moment etched in the finitude of history, yet in so doing that Christ could save your nowness in the present and offer you a new interpretation and guide to the memories you have of the past and the hope you have for a future. That is incredibly good news. That is the gospel in all its glory. And that, that is what Christ offers. That is what Christ offers to you. That is what Augustine found in his confessions. So here's the fun part. We're not yet done with the confessions. It's one more episode, and in our final episode, we've made some deep progress through very difficult concepts in books 10 and 11, and yet Augustine has still ended with a lot of mystery, a lot of struggle, and a lot of failure. As Augustine moves through memory and through time, where he inevitably is going to arrive is this need to go back to something 
far more stable, the need to go back to something far more revelatory, and the need to go back to something that can offer him some kind of guidance and direction and hope. And that source to which Augustine is going to return are the scriptures themselves, even though my hunch is you probably haven't heard the scriptures interpreted in the way Augustine is going to do it. So join us for our final episode as we continue working with Augustine. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.